0: We'll turn again this morning to the book of uh, Hebrews and the second chapter, uh, Hebrews chapter 2. And I want to draw your attention again to verses 1 through 4. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken... Through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders, and by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the assembly of the saints. Thank you for praise. Thank you for singing that we can lift our hearts to thee. And uh, as we redirect our minds to this particular section of Holy Scripture this morning, I would pray these moments for the the help of the Holy Spirit to, to bring honor to thee, to convey your your precious word, Father, in a way that is true to Um, its nature, true to its intention. I do thank you that you know the hearts of all men and women. I would pray that you would enlighten all of our hearts to just be enriched and, and to embrace your holy revelation. I pray it would be edifying to our our souls, encouraging to our hearts, and and be of great assistance to us in, in living the Christian life for your honor and for your glory. So we commit this time to thee as well. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last uh, Lord's Day, our attention was drawn to the first of several warnings that are found in the book of Hebrews uh, here in in chapter 2 and verses 1 through 4. And a theme that gives unity to these particular verses, it's a warning against neglecting salvation, a warning against neglecting salvation. And one of the main thoughts that I tried to get across last Lord's Day morning is that um, this and other warnings in, in Hebrews are greatly needed in the Christian life. They're greatly needed in our Christian growth. As as warnings are very helpful in common life, warnings are very helpful and needed in the Christian life as well. Um, and so we need passages that have positive promises, but we need these also Uh, that convey these kinds of warnings for our growth and for our our sanctification. Uh, Otherwise, they would not be in the Bible. We would not have a book like Hebrews that is written to brethren. We would not have the author identifying with those to whom he writes, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? He has a concern for these people, but he has no hesitation in in warning them about the eternal peril of falling away from the living God. So the, the heart of this particular warning is how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, and the short answer, of course, is we will not. Um, and sort of the, the dynamics that are associated with it, the, the term neglect, by the way, has reference to a, a disposition of, of not really caring, not to feel concern or interest in something. And the dynamics that go along with this um, is we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we don't drift away from it. We need to pay closer attention to uh, the revelation that we have, whose great, glorious, central theme is the salvation that is found in the person of Christ. We need to pay closer attention to that, and the reason is so that we do not drift away. In other words, the the route that that people take from what seems to be a serious profession of faith in Christ to this area of, I just really don't care. It's it's not fast. It's not blast off. It's just slow and and incremental. Uh, If you use your navigation device on your phone... Not that you would need it to get from Enum Buckley, but if you use it, uh, it would tell you that it takes about nine minutes to get there driving. But if you hit the little walk icon, then it takes takes you an hour and ten minutes to get there. You still get there, but it just takes a lot longer. The movement is is much slower. And that's the idea here. It's a a slow departure from the faith. It's not rapid. It's unhurried. So this morning, I just want to complete the section. So we'll be looking from the middle of verse 3 down through verse four, and I believe and I hope it will be good for our souls because these verses really, really they have the effect of heightening the force of the power of the warning. And it's really what they do. They underscore it as something that can't be sidestepped, something that can't be dismissed, but it must be applied to our hearts for the good of our souls. So um, this morning, I want you to consider three additional factors that govern our thinking about this great salvation, three additional factors that govern our thinking about the great salvation that is mentioned here. In the first place, um, we notice, that the, notice the initial communication of this great salvation, the initial communication of this salvation, the initial communication of the message after or when it was first spoken through the Lord. Um, and most fundamentally, I think this would refer to the, the teaching and preaching ministry of Christ uh, during his earthly ministry when it was first spoken through the Lord. You might think of a passage like Matthew four seventeen, where it says, "...from that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." Now, this does not mean that salvation was not spoken of before the earthly ministry of the person of Christ. Isaiah 45, 22, "...look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else." But uh, especially what happened here, to use a language of F.F. F. Bruce, um, in the first century, when promises gave way to fulfillment. So it's a profound new phase in the history of salvation. And again, to quote Bruce, he writes, the note of fulfillment was heard when Jesus came into Galilee after John the Baptist's imprisonment, preaching the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. He writes, and when, as in the synagogue at Nazareth, he read the words of Isaiah 61, which announced good tidings to the poor, release the captives, and proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Follow them with the de- declaration, today has this scripture been fulfilled in your ear. So it's when the promises gave Way to fulfillment, so it would include especially the public teaching and preaching of the Lord Jesus, but I would add a few other thoughts here, uh, unlike John the Baptist, uh, he, he not only preached the message he embodied the message and he accomplished the message that he that he preached William Lane wrote in this comprehensive sense, his ministry, which passed through successive stages of proclamation, sacrificial death, and exaltation, marked the beginning of the message of salvation. Now along the same lines, another commentator, the son's incarnation, teaching, sacrificial death, exaltation, and session are the origin of this salvation and the content of his proclamations of his proclamation and we could add also um so he, he preached salvation he accomplished salvation he embodied salvation and he is the object of faith for salvation we're not saved by faith in faith but we're saved by faith in the person of the lord jesus christ and so unlike john the baptist or anyone else jesus could say come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden and then a fourth thought. But this particular phrase, it brings out the divine sovereignty of the person of Christ. The divine sovereignty of the person of Christ. One put it like this. This salvation was certainly authoritative because it was spoken through the Lord. And Lord underscores the divine sovereignty of the one seated at God's right hand as the one who has accomplished God's ultimate revelation and thus provided a fully sufficient salvation. B.F. Westcott, very helpful commentary, wrote, The idea is of the sovereign majesty of Christ in himself. Uh, something of the, the greatness and the priority of this salvation is brought out by uh, three further considerations under this first heading. Number one, uh, it defines the mission, uh, the very purpose of Christ coming into the world. She shall bring forth a son, thou shalt call his name Jesus. He shall save his people from their sins. That, that's right in the heart and at the center of the mission, his purpose for coming into the world. And also, uh, it's reflected in the common des- his common designation as Savior. You guys are aware of this over and over again in the New Testament. He's referred to as a Savior. That's what he's called Luke 2.11, for today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Acts 5.31, he is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and Savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So as a Savior, he gives repentance and there is forgiveness of sins. And then thirdly, under this heading, a little bit more by, by the way of application, um, the message of salvation Puts our relationship to the things of this world in their proper light. The message of salvation, the nature of salvation, puts our relationship to the temporal things of this world in their proper light. Uh, And turn, if you would, back to uh, Mark chapter 8 and verse 31 for some help along this line. Mark uh, chapter 8 and then verse uh, 31. I'm going to actually begin reading in verse 34. Mark chapter 8 and verse 34. um, In verse 31 of Mark chapter 8, it says he began that is Jesus to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again then verse 34 he summoned the multitude with his disciples and said to them if anyone wishes to come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me for whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel shall save it verse 36 Says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. In and, and verse 36, what is a profit of man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? I, I think at least what it brings to light, most people can relate with, because most people, I, I believe, in this world, they think this is all there is. And so money and prestige and power, they're the most envied things and the most admired things. And if this world is all there is, then that makes sense. Um, but it is not. This particular text really turns that mindset on its head because the answer to the question is, what does a prophet man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? It is nothing. He gains nothing and he loses everything because this life is a vapor and the world that comes forever. And so salvation puts all of this in its proper perspective or its proper light. I was reading recently or rereading a part of the biography of George Whitfield. And there's a chapter about the conversion of the Wesleys, John and Charles Wesley, uh, wh- whose lives were intertwined so much with Whitfield in the 18th century. And Dalimore uh, indicates this is Charles Wesley after his conversion. He's written so many of our great hymns. It says that uh, he sought to declare salvation to every soul he could reach. He wanted to tell everybody about salvation. Kind of a long quote here. Dalimore says, in a beautiful work of Christian compassion, Charles went day after day among the condemned prim- criminals at Newgate Prison. Uh, Wesley says, I visited one of them in his cell, and this man was sick of a fever. He was in there for robbery. He says, I, I told him of one who came down from heaven to save lost sinners, and him in particular. Uh, I described the sufferings of the Son of God, his sorrows, agony, and death. He listened with all the signs of eager astonishment. The tears trickled down his cheeks while he cried, What was it for me? Did God suffer all this for so poor a creature as me? Upon visiting the prison three days later, um, he said this is this particular man um, who was saved. He says, "Who now believes the Son of God loved him and gave himself for him, as Charles declared the gospel 's good news to the felons, even in what he called the condemned whole. He saw its effect on them one by one, but he also experienced its effect afresh within his own heart as dealing with these pitiable individuals in this wretched place he said I had great help and power in prayer. I found myself overwhelmed with the love of Christ to sinners. As the day of execution approached, Charles increased his efforts. At night, he and his associate allowed themselves to be locked in with the condemned men. They wrestled in mighty prayer and saw fear and despair give way to peace and joy on one countenance after another. On the morning of the hanging, a boisterous crowd intent on making sport of the victims gathered as usual, as the death cart drew onto the field, Charles, Charles Wesley and a few friends were there to meet it. The, the man had been saved, he says, spied me coming out of the coach and saluted me with his looks. As often as his eyes met mine, he smiled with the most composed, delightful countenance I ever saw. Charles made his way through the crowd and climbed in the cart. There in, in the death cart, disdainful of the jeers of the crowd, Charles again spoke words of scriptural comfort to the poor victims. Uh, a rope from an overhead scaffold was placed around the neck of each prisoner. Charles continued his ministrations, praying with them, giving encouragement. When the cart drew off, says Charles, not one struggled for life. We left them going to meet their Lord, ready for the bridegroom. I, I spoke a few suitable words to the crowd and returned full of peace and confidence in our, our friends' happiness. And then Charles Wesley said, That hour under the gallows was the most blessed hour of my life. That only makes sense if, if this is a great and glorious salvation and there is a world to come that it delivers us from and it does. So we see here in the first place the, the initial communication of this great salvation, um, it's by our Lord and particularly in His earthly ministry. Number two, I would, I would have you notice there is a, a confirma- excuse me, there is confirmation of this by human witnesses, confirmation by human witnesses. So, initial communication by our Lord. Secondly, confirmation by human witnesses. So, what makes this salvation so great? It was announced and spoken by our Lord. The Lord accomplished this salvation for all who call upon him. But then you notice the text says, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. Um, It was also confirmed by human witnesses. The word confirmed here, Uh, It means to make firm or or to establish Uh, the saving message was guaranteed to us, as one put it, verified or proven to be true. Uh, F.F. Bruce wrote, neither our author nor his readers had heard the liberating message direct from the lips of our Lord, but depended on the sure testimony of those who had listened to him. Now, the text doesn't elaborate on how the message was confirmed to the initial hearers. Um, But I want to suggest three lines of thought on how it was authenticated to the the ones who heard it initially. Uh, Number one, it was confirmed by the number of witnesses who embraced the gospel. The number of witnesses who embraced the gospel. John Brown wrote, the idea intended to be conveyed by these words, is though we did not hear the Lord speak of the great salvation, we know both that he did speak about it and what he said about it from ear witnesses, We have the most satisfactory evidence, the attestation of credible witnesses in abundance, that these things were spoken by the Lord. The number of these witnesses was more than sufficient to confirm any truth. They were all united in their testimony. They were plain, undesigning men, incapable of forming and executing any deep, laid, complicated plan. Their veracity and integrity were unimpeachable. They had no worldly interest to serve by their testimony, but quite the reverse." Secondly, the message was was confirmed by the way in which those who embraced it were willing to suffer. It was confirmed by the number who heard it, but also the willingness of those who embraced it were willing to suffer. And here, turn if you would back to the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 16. Acts of the Apostles, chapter 16, a quote from... John Brown, in this respect, he said they exposed themselves to many, many of them endured sufferings and even death rather than conceal or clog their testimony. But notice notice beginning in verse 16 of Acts chapter 16, it was in the city of Philippi. It says it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a certain slave girl, having a spirit of divination, met us, who was bringing her master as much profit by fortune telling, following after Paul and us. She kept crying out, saying, these men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very moment. But when her master saw their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities, verse 20, and they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said... These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept but to observe. Verse 22, And the crowd rose up together against them. The chief priests tore their robes off them, proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison, fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns. Of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now, what's noticeable here is they're unjustifiably incarcerated, um, and they're treated with extreme violence. Their robes are torn off, they're beaten with rods, many blows inflicted upon them, thrown into the prison, thrown into the inner part of the prison, Their, their feet are put in stocks. Yet there's no there's no hint of bitterness here or inclination to renounce their faith at all. Rather, verse 25 indicates they're praying and singing hymns of praise to God so the legitimacy of the message is confirmed by this this willingness to to suffer for it on the part of those who re- received it then thirdly the testimony is confirmed by the power of the message to immediately change a life. It's confirmed by the power of the message to immediately change the lives of those who received it. A couple of examples here. If you just stay in Acts chapter 16, all you have to do is continue reading, beginning in verse 26. Suddenly there came a a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. Immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. And when the jailer Had been roused out of sleep and had seen the prison doors open. He drew his sword, was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. He called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. That is those members of the household who would also have believed in the person of Christ. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, and he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly having believed in God with his whole household now what arrests our attention here there's a pretty quick turnaround from being suicidal to rejoicing with his household and others who were saved and the reason is simple he was saved that's all that that's all that happened he believed on the lord jesus christ then another example if you turn back to luke chapter 19 luke chapter 19 just a a life that is changed by the power of the gospel by salvation luke chapter 19 and, and verse 1 Referring to Jesus, it said he entered and was passing through Jericho. And verse 2 says, Behold, there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax gatherer, and he was rich. And he was trying to see who Jesus was. He was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. He ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. He hurried and came down, received him gladly. And when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, he's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner, which was true. And Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, "'Behold, Lord, half my possessions I'll give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I'll give back four times as much.'" And Jesus says, "'Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham,' which means he had the same faith of Abraham." For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. This is another example of so great a salvation and a radically, immediately transformed life. Fits in with the mission of our Lord to seek and to save that which is lost. Our Lord's assessment is today salvation has come to your house. And um, unlike the, the rich young ruler, of course he was wealthy, but unlike the rich young ruler who instead of going away sad because he was unwilling to part with his possessions, Zacchaeus was happy and joyful. He, he's willing to give it all up to follow the person of Christ. So he, he's the opposite of what is a prophet a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul. So the greatness of this salvation is confirmed by the the many who embrace the gospel, by their willingness to suffer for the message, and and the immediate change that takes place in the lives of those who repent and and come savingly to Christ. Thirdly, if you get back to uh, Hebrews chapter 2, thirdly, um, we have the confirmation of divine witness. The confirmation of divine witness. The greatness of salvation is, Um, It's confirmed by the testimony of human witnesses. But then when we get to verse 4, we we see that this salvation is confirmed by divine witness. Verse 4 reads like this. God also bearing witness with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will this bearing witness with them is to bear witness together to bear witness in in support of one another or others to, or to to join in attesting ff bruce i think makes the point really well he says the witness of their informants however was confirmed by the signs and wonders and the mighty works which attended their proclamation of the message there were tokens granted by god to attest the truth that was complaint, that was excuse me that was proclaimed and peter o'brien and uh, writes, the witness to the community was confirmed, was confirmed by signs and wonders and mighty works, together with distributions of the Holy Spirit, all of which accompanied the proclamation of the gospel. God granted these tokens to attest the truth of the message which the evangelist brought. Um, the, the, these words, sign, wonders, and miracles, are pretty close in meaning. Uh, a sign is a miraculous event manifesting a supernatural act of it by a divine agent, often with an emphasis on communicating a message. Uh, wonders is any amazing or wonderful occurrence, especially used of something supernatural. And then miracles is the outward expression of power in accomplishing the sign or the wonder. And I, I say this with a little bit of reserve, but I think the accent on, on sign especially brings out the purpose of the miracle to validate something as being from God. A, a sign points to a particular reality. And then a wonder is, a, is an event that causes awe, it arrests attention. And then miracle refers to the the power needed to affect the sign or the wonder. So the the purpose, the purpose of these miracles is a clear demonstration of God's power to validate the message or the truth that it accompanies. That's the purpose. Um, In Acts 2.22, it says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, uh, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. And the same is also true of the apostles. In Acts 2.43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. So at least in my view, it's wrong-headed to be inordinately preoccupied with the miracles that are taking place. It's right to be persuaded of the truth of the, of the truth that it is validating or authenticating. Let me just offer a three or for concluding thoughts in this connection. Uh, number one, this, this language of attestation or confirmation of the message of Christ and the apostles, it seems to me it lends support to the argument that these miracles were restricted uh, to the first century since we now have the completed canon of Scripture. You know, there's books written about this. All I'm saying here, it, it lends support to the to the idea that these miracles, these, um, Miracles and signs and wonders were restricted to the first century because now we have the completed canon of Holy Scripture. Jonathan Edwards in a work on um, 1 Corinthians 13, it's entitled Charity and Its Fruits. He says, The extraordinary gifts of the Spirit are called extraordinary because they are such as are not given in the ordinary course of providence. "...they are not bestowed in the way of God's ordinary ordinary providential dealing with his children, but only on extraordinary occasions as they were bestowed on the prophets and apostles to enable them to reveal the mind and will of God before the canon of Scripture was complete." and so on the primitive church in order to the founding and establishing of it in the world. But since the canon of Scripture has been completed, and the Christian church fully founded and established, these extraordinary gifts have ceased. Matthew Henry wrote, these and other gifts of prophecy being a sign have since ceased and laid aside, and we have no encouragement to expect the revival of them. On the contrary, we're directed to call the Scripture the more sure word of prophecy, more sure than voices from heaven, and to them we are directed to take heed to Search them and to hold them fast. So, the, this the, the message that needed to be authenticated by divine witness, by signs and wonders, it's now inscripturated by, by God's power in the Holy Scripture. We have this word of prophecy made more sure. Secondly, the extraordinary works of God did not always secure saving faith. Now, you turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. The, The display of signs and wonders, it did not always secure a saving faith. And I would just have you notice Acts 14 and verse 1. Acts 14, verse 1 it says it came about that in Iconium they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a great multitude believed both of Jews and Greeks then verse 2 but the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren therefore they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord notice this who was bearing witness to the word of his grace granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands what was the effect of that? The multitude of the city was divided and some sided with the Jews and some with the Apostles. And when an attempt was made by the, the Gentiles and the Jews and their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Laconia, Lystra, Derby, and the surrounding region. So not only did some disbelieve that their intention was to stone the apostles, even though signs and wonders were done. I I, I think it's important to, to think about that because I'm, I'm persuaded there's a tendency possibly for us to think if if God performed some profound miracle, then people would repent and they would come to Christ. If there, There's some. event like that to get their attention, then they're going to repent and then they are, are going to come to Christ. Such is not the case. Let me just add this. True salvation always occurs and it only occurs when there's a confluence of two great doctrines, election and effectual calling. That's what has to happen for anyone to be saved. Chosen in him before the foundation of the world, election, effectual calling, particular points of time in salvation's history where God is pleased to call those people to himself, overcome the resistance that is in their heart. When those two things come together, his people are saved and nothing can stop it. That's what has to happen. Well, then thirdly, and this is a little bit of kind of testimony with respect to this, but everyone has, you have to be fully persuaded in your own mind about the purpose of miracles and their cessation with the completion of the Holy Scriptures. Jonathan Edwards called the first century the age of miracles. Um, but another factor, and again, you don't really start with this, but okay, you're in Acts of the Apostles. Turn to Acts chapter 13. Um, another factor, and you don't really start with this, but I feel like I've been a Christian for a long time and been around a lot of godly people. I've never seen anything like what you read about in the Acts of the Apostles or the Gospels. I've never seen anything like what you read about in the Gospels and the kind of miracles that Jesus is performing. And you read the Acts of the Apostles and you read the kind of miracles that Paul and Peter. I, I, now, that doesn't make it wrong. I'm just saying in my own experience, I've been around a lot of, of Christians that love God and are godly, never seeing anything that is, is, is like this. Now, notice Acts chapter 13 and verse 4. Acts chapter 13 and verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they came down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they reached Salamis, they begin to proclaim the word of God of the synagogues of the Jews. And they also had John as their helper. And, and when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they, they found a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was of the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But but Elimus, the magician, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who is also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze upon him and said, "'You who are full of all deceit and fraud, "'you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, "'will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord?' And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. The proconsul then the proconsul believed when he saw what would happen, being amazed by the teaching of the Lord. Now, I would put it like this. You might find yourself in a situation where you're witnessing to somebody in kind of a group setting and somebody from a, a false religious system shows up. You're witnessing to a person about the salvation of their souls. Somebody from a, a false religious system shows up, and they, they oppose what you're doing. So you, you, can, you can use part of what Paul is doing here. You, you can look at that person and say, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, and that's right. They're, they're opposing the salvation of a soul, so it's right to do that. You, you can use that, but don't tell them that God is going to blind them. You don't have that kind of power, nor do I have that kind of power. That, that, that's, that's first century stuff. It's to validate the message that was there. We have it now. It's all here. We, we don't need signs and wonders. We have the, the completed canon of Scripture. So the, the fourth thing here, we need to realize the great thing is salvation. Uh, that's what the signs and wonders point to. That's the glorious thing when a person is eternally saved. Um, there's lots of uh, miracles in the I'm missing something here. There's lots of miracles in the New Testament, but I I never read where angels are rejoicing when 5,000 people are fed. I never read that angels are rejoicing when someone is healed of some disease, which is glorious. You never read that angels are rejoicing when the water is turned into wine, but you do read that the angels in heaven rejoice when what? One sinner repents. That's the issue. That's the great, glorious salvation when a person turns to Christ. That's the salvation that we do not want to neglect and take lightly. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy and your kindness to us. And pray that you would take what we have considered this morning and and use it for your honor and your glory and apply it to our own hearts that we would be um, more willing servants of, of thy kingdom, that we would delight in thee more deeply. And so I just pray that you would apply thy word to our our souls uh, for your honor, uh, for your glory, for our good. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.